Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And to our dear fellow saloners who either purchased a copy of one of my books or who made direct donations to the salon, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I, I truly appreciate your support. It really means a lot to me. So, uh, for today's program, which is a day or so late this week, I'm very pleased to be able to bring you a talk given by fellow saloner Jonathan Talat Phillips, who is uh, someone that is well known by many of our fellow saloners for his longtime commitment to building our community, both uh, online and in many other ways. As you most likely know, uh, Jonathan co-founded both Reality Sandwich and the Evolver Network, where he's now coordinating over uh, 40 Evolver communities, regional ones. Additionally, uh, Jonathan is the uh, creator of the Ayahuasca Monologues, Tales of the Spirit Vine, which is now in its fifth year and will be held on the 4th of October in New York City. And uh, I'll link to that announcement in the program notes for today's podcast. As if all of that wasn't enough, uh, Jonathan is also a religion blogger for the Huffington Post and is the author of a book titled The Electric Jesus, The Healing Journey of a Contemporary Gnostic, which is the focus of his talk that I'll be playing for you momentarily. Now, uh, in about ten minutes, you're going to hear Jonathan mention that a friend once said to him, you need to take some MDMA and get your butt on the dance floor, which, in my opinion, is always good advice. But I want to uh, challenge you with a little historical trivia about taking MDMA and dancing all night. Now, when you think about the combination of MDMA and electronic music, have you ever uh, wondered how it all got started? Well, uh, maybe you've heard the version where Genesis P. Orridge uh, heard some house music on a trip to Chicago and then took it back to the UK where it was combined with MDMA and graves were born. But there was a time and a place where MDMA, electronic music, and a Burning Man-like club scene was going strong, uh, long before Genesis P. Orridge first visited Chicago. The time and uh, place that I'm talking about is Dallas, Texas, and the Stark Club in the early 1980s. And uh, right now you can watch a short video about the Stark on their Kickstarter page where the last $40,000 is being raised to finish the production of a movie titled The Stark Project. Uh, and it's been in the making for several years now. Uh, in fact, in next week's podcast, I'll try to remember to tell you about my interview for this film. But right now, if you have any interest at all in the history and origins of the worldwide dance scene, uh, then check out their video on the Kickstarter page, which I'll put a link to in the program notes for this podcast. And uh, as you know, you can get to that via psychedelicsalon.us. And uh, just to whet your historical appetite a little more, Here's a brief description of that wild time and place, and I quote from their Kickstarter page, Dallas was the epicenter for 1980s counterculture. The heartbeat of the city was the Stark Club, Shangri-La for the rich, the famous, the uber-hip, movie stars, rock stars, sports celebrities, Dallas debutantes, politicians, and anyone else who had the attitude and duds to convince the phalanx at the front door to let them pass. The then-legal drug, MDMA, or ecstasy, was adding euphoric fuel to the fire. Stark was the earthquake that would shake the world with the emergence of the new progressive subculture that would soon be known from Los Angeles to Detroit to London to Ibiza as rave. End quote. Next week, uh, I'll tell you about the uh, interview that I did for the film, and which uh, may be included as a bonus material on the eventual DVD. Uh, right now, the working title of my interview is Confessions of an Ecstasy Dealer. <laughs> but uh, that's enough of those stories for now. Uh, just go check out the Stark Club's uh, or the Stark Project's Kickstarter video and uh, you'll get a better idea of what I'm talking about. Now, uh, getting back to our featured talk this week, as the recording begins, you'll hear Jonathan thanking Sobe for keeping the space, which also gives me the chance to give a shout out to my dear friend Sobe. 
who has been keeping the space for a large portion of the dance community and uh, for our tribe for many years. In fact, Sobe is one of the people who uh, even kept the Palenque Norte lectures at Burning Man alive uh, way back in its second year. And without his involvement, that series uh, might have died on the vine uh, after its first appearance in 2003. And in case you've forgotten, this podcast is a direct result of that lecture series. So, on behalf of us all, Sobe, thanks for keeping our flame alive. And now let's uh, join Sobe and some of his friends at a location in Vancouver, where Jonathan Talat Phillips is talking about what I think of as his mystical adventure that includes Jesus, aliens, and ayahuasca. Okay, so it's great to be here, guys. Um, Sobe, I've got to thank Sobe for holding the space for... It's like two years now, right? Over two years. Just like, you know, holding monthly spores, um, really activating uh, things here in Vancouver. I'm hoping some of you folks, we're going to talk about what Vancouver's been up to, and maybe you'd like to get involved and help make some awesome thing happen. It's like, uh, I really think Vancouver should have an ayahuasca monologue this year. That'd be really fun. Uh, one of our best events in New York City. Can you speak up? Oh, yeah, I can speak up. I realize I'm only talking the front row here. So, um, yeah, thank you, thank you, Selby, thank you, Vanian Books, and thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, I'm always getting on the spore organizers. We have 40 spores in the U.S. and abroad. And one of the two requirements we have is, uh, we'll host a monthly event, tell us how it goes, and then we ask them to have an email sign-up sheet. And I'm always saying, did you guys pass out an email sign-up? Because we are building a transformational network here. So if you want to receive uh, announcements of awesome things, of what's going on here and through Evolver, um, please sign up. Um, and just one last thank you. I would like to thank my brother, Drew, um, one, for taking care of me while I'm here, but also for letting me write about the family um, very honestly in the book and supporting me in this. Um, this book is, a lot of it is about healing. And, um, I'm sure there are plenty of people here that have things in their family lines to heal. Um, there's a horrible healer joke that says, oh God, I don't know if you guys have heard this. Um, what does what a healer call a fucked up childhood? Initiation. <laughs> so we'll talk a lot about healing. and uh, Maybe you guys have healing questions, things you're going through later. Uh, feel I welcome you to talk about them. Um, so anyways... If you told me, like, six or seven years ago that I would be here talking with you guys about Jesus, aliens, and ayahuasca, um, I would have laughed my ass off. And this is how I start off the book, is saying that. Um, I, I was a skeptical, rational, materialist, political activist working to change the world. And, but I had been to Burning Man. Which meant I was doing a little more flamboyantly than some of my other, like, anarchist friends at the time. And the way I was doing this was, it was in 2004, when George W. Bush was running for the second election. He was coming to New York City, where I was from. I had actually been working for the September 11th Fund. And so many of them were just really upset about how they were exploiting September 11th for political gain and to create this war to basically pay back Halliburton's and Bechtel's and all these people that had financed this campaign. So I was really angry about that. They were coming to New York to exploit the tragedy, and so we created an American revolution against King George and his corporate tyranny. And what this meant is we dressed up as very flashy patriots, like 1776 patriots. Um, it was like Benjamin Collins and Bootsy Franklin. If you put Bootsy... No, I mixed those up. Benjamin Franklin, you got Benjamin Franklin and you got Bootsy Collins and you put them together, this is what you would have. It's very flamboyant, very flashy, uh, LeMay this, shiny that, you know. And it was kind of the Marilyn Manson approach. The shinier the costume, the more headlines you make. And so we did these flamboyant media stunts. We did a Paula Revere's ride on horsicle, half bike, half horse, uh, warning New York, the Republicans are coming! We did that. We did a uh, crossing of New York Park. Do you know the crossing of the Delaware, that picture of uh, Washington and stuff? So we did that. We did a crossing of New York Harbor. Um, 
on the Staten Island Ferry with all the stunned Staten Island uh, commuters. It was the uh, crossing of New York Harbor, yeah. Um, a Declaration of Independence, this 30-foot-long scroll. Um, and we actually had more grievances than the original document against uh, George II. We did these movie, media stunts, and we're really successful for a group of 30 people. We were on CNN, MSNBC, Fox, da 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 da, da. Um, And I was even on the cover of New York Magazine. And I think like the 500,000 other, 500, other people that had participated in the largest protests ever against the political convention, we thought that political action alone could save the day. And as you all know, that did not happen. Um, when Bush uh, won the second election, some people say he took it, stole it. I think he won it, which was actually more disturbing to me. Because we actually re-elected someone that brought us to war on false pretenses. That's a really heavy thing to live with in your country, right? And so, I just remember my activist friends at the time, they are like, if Bush wins this election, there is going to be riots in the street, non-stop. It's going to be total chaos. What happened is we were all depressed. <laughs> Nobody did anything. Like, most of us stayed in bed. Uh, there was even a New York Times article, because it was just like this horrible drizzle rain along the East Coast for like two weeks. And it was talking about how the weather was just like everyone within the East Coast. We were just depressed. And we felt isolated in the country. We felt lost. Like, why are we even part of this thing called the U.S., you know? And I was in bed just depressed, looking at an entire lost year of my life. Gone. Um, and then I started looking at the planetary situation. We're in what's called the sixth great extinction right now, with three species dying every hour. So by the end of this presentation, there may be a few less, you know, friends among us. And uh, it just hit me that this is way too big for politicians to figure out. Whether I voted Democrat or Republican, it was not going to help our Earth that's just in so much crisis right now. And what somehow occurred to me is, we needed a paradigm shift. And I also want to kind of point out something that I realized, because I started wondering, where did things get so messed up? Where did it go wrong? There had to be something here, some underlying thing that created all of this. And I, I was always interested in revolution, sexual, psychedelic, you know, French, American, all of this. But all of a sudden, I was obsessed with empire. And I felt like this comes from empire. And I just started following empires back throughout history. Uh, American, British, German, Roman, Greek, back, 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 back. And then I got it to the weirdest place of all. And I'm not a religious guy, but it was the Garden of Eden. And I was looking at this myth, realizing that this myth seemed to sum up a historical leap in our planetary culture, if you will. Because in this, you have a tribal model of existence. Adam and Eve, they're living with the birds and bees and nature. It's kind of this tribal culture. And then there's this, there's this rift that happens. There's a, a bite of knowledge. And then suddenly you have this separation from God. You have patriarchy. And I think you have the most damaging thought virus on the entire planet, which is original sin. You are born bad, God doesn't love you, you are not worthy, you have to prove your love, and even though you prove it, it's never going to be good enough. Shame, blame. And if you look at the next chapter in the Bible, right after that, what do you have? You have civilization. You have agriculture. You have king and able domesticating animals and toiling in the fields. And we all know how that worked out, right? The old Cain and Abel story. And I think that mythology of the agricultural revolution, which uh, it happens right in the Fertile Crescent, spreads across the planet and creates a pretty traumatic um, situation for us as far as like collective consciousness goes. So I was looking at that and thinking, oh my god, we need a paradigm shift. We need to a Galileo-type paradigm shift where we just see the world in an entirely different way. And I mean, I know Copernicus kind of discovered it first, but Galileo 
really popularize this idea of, guess what? The universe does not revolve around us. We revolve around the sun, and everything's relational in a different way than we once thought. And it didn't just change the way we kind of look at the sky. It changed the way we looked at each other in our world. So as a defeatist, defeated activist, temp worker, um, I started doing this looking for a paradigm shift, right? Which, you know, I wasn't a visionary scientist or philosopher or anything, which seems like a little foolhardy to do. And I looked for months and months. And then in the book, I'll just, I describe the story in much more detail, but you guys know that Chinese course, uh, May You Get What You Wish For. Yeah, well, that's what happened to me. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, she called me up and she's just like, look, you're turning 30, you've been talking, bitching about, you know, paradigm shifts in politics for months. You need to take some MDMA <laughs> and get your butt on the dance floor. Yeah, I see. Like, you know what? <laughs> There's gonna be a lot of talks about drugs. <laughs> it's a good thing we didn't bring Blake. Well, when he gets about 21, I, I think I might have a little talk. <laughs> so. Take some MDA, MA and get your butt on the dance floor. And then something, you know, some of the critics of my book have already said, oh, this guy who took a pill and he thinks it's a mystical experience and da, 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 he doesn't know about Jesus, you know. It's like, wait a second. This is the most ancient thing that we've done, and it works really well. Cultures across the planet for centuries, since the dawn of human existence, have been taking consciousness-altering substances, dancing, drumming, to create uh, altered states of consciousness, to create transformation for each other, for the individual and the collective as a whole. And that's what happened to me is I got out of my head, I got into my heart, and then a series of amazing synchronicities, which I describe in the book, uh, line up and poof, the lights turn on. And suddenly I can see um, energy fields around people, around furniture around everything. And I realized that we are not separated, isolated, protoplasmic beings only, but that we are actually, you know, all interconnected energetically. And, um, which can actually be a little disturbing when you're on a New York subway. (laughs) Everyone is actually all part of one and they don't know it. Um, And it also isn't really great for your day job starting to see energy fields. I had this temp job, I thought I was going crazy. People would come in and they'd be like, this needs to be done by five o'clock. And meanwhile, there was this perfect white background behind them and I could just see this giant aura. I'd be like, wow, you know, I really don't care about the FedEx right now. And so I got fired. (laughs) And I was moping around the East Village, which you do unemployed in New York City in my temp clothes, you know, the khaki outfit and that whole thing. And just feeling like I was crazy, I was broke, Bush is in office, he's the freaking president now. What, what is this about? And then, you know, you know how people say, have you found Jesus? This is the moment where, probably to my parents' joy, that Jesus found me. And it was a form of this poster on a construction site, um, you know, it was a normal-looking hippie Jesus with a hand out to help you. But around him was exactly what I was seeing. And I remember kind of sacrilegiously saying to myself, holy shit, halos really exist. And the skeptical, rational, know-it-all me had to eat a lot of, like, I don't know the word for that, but I had, to, I had to suck it up a little bit and admit I was wrong. That I didn't know everything. That there was a whole mystical universe and that visionary artists and mystics throughout time had been messaging this. And I felt like they had a message to me in this image of saying, you are not crazy. Other people are going through this. Follow, follow the clues if you want to find your way home and what this is about. And so strangely enough, I started studying Jesus, early Christianity, and what I found out was it was just so much more marvelous than what we've been told. 
we've been like regurgitated these this literalist version that's extremely boring. Early Christianity was diverse, it was mystical. I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming that it stemmed from the Mediterranean mystery schools, which had initiatory rites of passage. Uh, early Christians, I believe, um, were using spiritual energy. They were using energy just like every mystical tradition, pretty much, whether you're talking ki, chi, mana, prana. Uh, but the, the Gnostics would have called it, in the early mystical Christians, pneuma, spiritual energy and spiritual breath. Those that were deeper initiates were called pneumatics. They were full of spiritual energy. Um, the study of the Holy Spirit is called pneumatology. And there's scenes in the New Testament where Jesus will actually go and um, deliver the advocate, the Holy Spirit, to his disciples through breath work. It's like an energetic transmission. Um, the healings, like Reiki people, they're obsessed with Jesus. I don't know if you noticed that. Because he's like, he like the... O O R M, original Reiki master, right? He's just going around doing hands-on healing. If you see the images of Jesus, there's always this energy glowing off of him and healing people. Uh, there's lines in the Bible of like, um, there's this woman who's been suffering from like menstruation for I, I, I don't forget if it's 12 years or 12 months. Either way, you know, not not great. And she touches Jesus, and the power. Um, drains out of her and into him and it heals her. And they actually use the word the power. So, I think he was uh, they were working with energy for transformation and healing, just like Sufis, Buddhists, shamans, you know, the whole deal. And the word, um, I think a lot of the original words that we've been told are inaccurate. Like sin, it's hamartia, means missing the mark. You fell off your path, come back online. <laughs> Repent, which, you know, uh, Pat Robertson uses that one so strong. Repent, repent for your sins. It means to have a change of consciousness, right? People meet Jesus, the higher vibrational being of love, universal compassion. They have a shift in consciousness. They have a change of mind. That's repent, metanoia, totally different. In uh, the word soter, uh, savior. Soter means bestower of health or one who makes whole. There's healing this rift of separation, this Garden of Eden rift that I had been exploring. And the Gnostics were obsessed with the Garden of Eden myth, and that Jesus is kind of like this solution for it, coming in and reminding us of our spiritual heritage, of being divine sons and daughters. Um, yeah, and so the book goes into quite a bit of depth of early Gnostic texts, but I try to make it really fun, because I find that a lot of Gnostic books are... You've really got to drink the coffee if you want to get through it all. <laughs> but I, I go into a lot of the Nag Hammadi library, um, into what the Gnostics and early Christians were doing, um, and it's just really beautiful stuff. How many people here have read uh, the Gospel of Thomas? Let's just see some hands. All right, homework for like everybody in this room is, <laughs> it's like reading the Tao Te Ching. It's just such a poetic, visionary look at uh, ecstatic experience and... Um, this universe we live in. It's a beautiful text. A lot of the New Testament quotes, I think, come from the Gospel of Thomas. They have found fragments of Thomas that date it before Mark, the earliest text of the Synoptic Gospels, so it's pretty old. Uh, 40 AD is where they think it was. Um, yeah. So I get into that, but also I get into this. Uh, one of my favorite elements of this book is it's a mystical detective novel. And how many mystical detective novels are out there? Yeah. I know one, uh, The Cosmic Serpent with Jeremy Narby. I think that's a good mystical one. It gets into like DNA and the serpents you find across the globe in the form. And my book does that, but it does it with energy. And I believe they didn't have science and certain technologies to describe energy, so they had myth and storytelling and symbolism. And there are symbols I just find in mystical cultures across the globe. The Tree of Life, the energetic tree of the body, the world tree of life, the interconnected web of us all, the serpent, double helix, kundalini serpent, the dove, the eagle, uh, the Merkaba, Star of David. You find these in so many cultures. And I think the book reveals some really re remarkable secrets about what they're hinting at and what this transformation of consciousness could be. So I think that's one of the pleasures. If you guys pick up the book, uh, you'll enjoy that. Um, but like I said, I'm not a Gnostic academic. I'm a Gnostic, 
And, I mean, if you guys are here, you're probably a Gnostic. You want Gnosis, that direct experience. You know? And the thing about Gnosis is it's like no one can tell you about it. Like, I could tell you Paris is great. It's got, I don't know, 7 million people. They really like croissants there and their coffee. But the only way to really know Paris is to go there yourself and experience it directly. And the Gnostics would say it's the same about the kingdom of heaven. And for me, I, I wanted these Gnostic experiences with these different symbols. And it just leads me on a detective journey with um, adventure story with, um, let me see, with like a Kundalini awakening, which I really screw up uh, pretty badly. It's, you know, initiatory processes can be very dangerous when you're first going through them. People die in initiation. We forget that. And, you know, I get pretty close to that a couple times in the book, but I made it through, and I'm a lot more careful now. But Kundalini Awakenings, prankster, prankster Spirit Guides, out-of-body experiences, past life stuff. I didn't believe in any of this until I experienced it firsthand. Um, and uh, what else? DMT, Galactic Cowboys. It's, just, it's got a lot of fun stuff in there uh, to check out. And I'll, I'll read a little bit of it to give you an idea of that stuff. Um, and also, um, I, I'm tracking, this book starts in 2004, and what I start tracking is this consciousness culture that's really starting to rise up with like Burning Man, with permaculture people, open source uh, platforms, um, this whole thing that's coming up. And now I think we're really starting to see it, especially like with Occupy just taking off. It feels like a lot of these ideas. But what's great is like Occupy, when I'm an activist, you couldn't even talk about this stuff hardly. They have a consciousness committee at in New York where they you know they get together and they talk about you know we're going to do this meditation flash mob and we're going to do these things we're going to have a healer night where the healers come down and heal with people that have been well when they were living at Zuccotti Park it's like a whole different ballgame going on right now because people are seeing that consciousness and political action they really need to connect if you want to create change because otherwise if you're just doing the old activism you're stuck you're stuck in that old paradigm the fight the friction but if you're just doing the new agey uh, off in the cloud with the angels and the fairies, you're not grounded. There's no real change going on. And that's what I see with a lot of us. It's like we're grounded, we're here, we're real, and we're tapped in too. And we're healing along the way. A huge thing is like the 60s, you didn't hear people talk about healing so much. You know, it was like drop in, tune out, with the, you know, do the electric colloid acid test, which is great. It was the first initiatory step. But I think we've matured a lot along these ways, and we understand the profound work that's being done right now. And also the profound play as well. I don't want to make it sound like it's all, it's all tough. But a lot of it is, you know? I mean, ayahuasca ceremonies. Uh, let's see, how many people out here have tried ayahuasca? Let's just see. <laughs> wow. When we first did uh, the ayahuasca monologue in New York in 2005, we asked that question in the audience. How many of you have done ayahuasca? Uh, the speakers raised their hand. That was it. You know, this year we did it, and I think three-fourths of the audience raised their hand. Well, those of you who have known done ayahuasca, you know. It's just like you got to face your shadow stuff. You may be in a puke bucket the whole night, you know, puking out that childhood or whatever it is. And you, people keep coming back. We keep facing the fear. We keep illuminating these shadows that really need that help. So I'm, I'm really proud of us and the work we're doing. And I think it's just the beginning. Um, one of the things in the book I finally got into, and I didn't want to admit it, and it wasn't until Daniel Pinchbeck, who edited this book, the author of 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, he took me aside, well, in his typical Daniel way, he actually, it was already picked up, and he goes, Jonathan, this is unpublishable in its current form. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> and he's like, you have to be honest about everything your relationships, your journey, your thoughts, what you're feeling, bring the shadow out, and everything. And uh, I'm really grateful for that, because he did make me be totally honest about my life. The messy parts, the beautiful parts, it's all in this book. You know, it's like, it's a human story of like what I was going through, and I'm not glossing it over like you just see so many folks do when they're talking about these experiences. It's all good, it's all bunnies. Not all bunnies. Um, but it's got aliens, and that was <laughs> that was the one thing I refused to come out of the galactic closet with because 
I remember when I was like 21 years old, working at some coffee shop in Denver, listening to Tom Waits, reading Bukowski, smoking way too many cigarettes, and drinking Paps Blue Ribbon. It's like, this is pre-hipster days, but I was like well on the hipster world. Um, this woman in the coffee shop started talking to me about quantum physics and molecular biology and that how it affected our emotions and even a little bit about string theory, and I was fascinated by this stuff because she was talking to me scientifically, but kind of had this spiritual consciousness bent, and I hadn't heard, really heard someone talk about that too much. Fascinated with talking with her for like 40 minutes until she said, oh, and the aliens are here to help us. <laughs> First of all, I discounted everything she had just told me was now bullshit. And I was completely angry. Now I understand what like an energetic fireball is, but back then I didn't, and I pretty much just sent that at her. And this woman, just like defeated, deflated, walks out, and it was one of these horrible Colorado thunderstorms. You know these things. In the afternoon, they just they just dump, and this woman flees like without a coat into this thunderstorm to get away from me. So, I know the damage of coming out of the galactic closet. People can take kundalini awakenings, yoga, spirit guides. As soon as you drop the A-bomb, they're gone, right? <laughs> but you know, that made this book so much richer, because the truth is, in this journey, I was having galactic guidance. It was a first step. Um, and it's a really delicious, fun one. It's creative. Um, and I think the experience of... I think that whole abduction storyline is just so old hat. And I gotta tell you, I'm running into people all across the Evolver network. Like they start saying these things and I just finally I'll pull them aside at a party and say, Okay, this is gonna sound a little weird, but do you have any galactic connections? And then they'll say, Oh yeah, this one time I was taking shrooms and I saw my friend shapeshift into this thing or you know, a lot of stories across the network. And I kinda come up with the theory in this book that maybe we do come from other places, just like your German, Scottish, Jewish, uh, you know. We may have other lineages that we come from, if you can buy into, like, incarnation and these things. And it might be the Galactic Cavalry is here to remember, to wake up, to, like, kind of, it's like the neighbors coming in to wake up to the real intergalactic dance party that we've all been waiting for. Um... And it goes into this idea of there may have been early avatars that knew this awakening experience. And whether they were cosmic implants, mythological figures, actual historical ones, I kind of become obsessed with the Axial Age. Do folks know this time period? It's like, it was like 800 BC to 200 uh, BC. But of course, I extend it to 0 BC, because what's 200 years? And then I can put Jesus in there. Because I apparently I'm obsessed, and now I'm a, a Christian. I never thought I'd say I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm just a weird one. Um, and this age was where you had all these spiritual masters coming to the planet, uh, delivering a message of love. It was the golden rule, whether it was Buddhist, Lao Tzu, Confucius, Jesus. It was that golden rule of... Love thy neighbor as you would love yourself. Or treat thy neighbor as you would treat yourself. Which is a really tricky one. Because everyone always hears that first part of like, oh, i got to be nice to my neighbor. Oh, but wait. It actually means I have to love myself. And that often is the really hard one. And it's this energetic exchange and honesty that happens through that teaching. And it's a heart teaching. Because you see the other, you see that self in everyone. And I kind of see them as like the first... Like they're the Marines coming into Earth, the spiritual celestial Marines, these guys. And now we're all waking up to this, this truth as well and carrying that message. So anyways, I thought it would be fun here to read one of the, one of the more ET-type chapters. <laughs> That's okay, folks. So this is um, at Burning Man. Let's, let's just see, how many folks here have been at Burning Man? Raise your hand. That's pretty good. How many people believe there might be aliens out there? <laughs> cool. I, I like to see questions again. Oh, one more question. How many people believe the aliens are already here? <laughs> About the same, really. All right. <laughs> um, yeah, I at least believe in Burning Man. Um, 
Yeah, so this is a Burning Man. This is back in the day where Bass Nectar was still doing, like, warehouse parties and stuff, and he's DJing. Now Bass Nectar does, like, entire festivals on islands. I just It's just amazing to your, see your friends suddenly, like, rise up and really spread their art to many more people. It's been really fun to watch Daniel Pinchbeck do that, too, over the years. I remember when he talked about this book 2012, back in, like, 2004, and I was like, you are crazy. People are not going to be into that. <laughs> wow, is he right? <laughs> okay. So this is at um, Bass Nectar on the dance floor. Um, okay. I ingested, and Jade uh, is my girlfriend in the book at the time. I had ingested only a dash of Jade's chocolate treats. Can you guys hear me back there? Okay, great. I had ingested only a dash of Jade's chocolate treats and felt a light, pleasant buzz. Usually I had to be pretty blasted before my self-proclaimed guides would show up. These are kind of the galactic guides. But now, under the glow of the towering sunflower, they announced themselves, giggling in my ear, humming tunes that suggested hexagonal patterns in my mind's eye, in sync with Bates Nectar's low metallic pulses. I welcomed them. They asked me to close my eyes while I traced Jade's dance moves. She knows how to follow the energy, they told me. You're still learning. Behind my eyelids, I saw a computer-animated scene of Earth back in its boiling volcanic days, three to four billion years ago, when a single-celled creature magically appeared on the planet's harsh surface. And fast forward, I watched this cell multiply and spread, mastering the art of photosynthesis, before dividing into more geometrically complex eukaryotes, then into early sponge-like animals, stretching out into the segmented skeletons of fish, crawling and gasping, gasping as rubbery amphibians onto land, morphing into lumbering dinosaurs, dissolving into furry mammalian rodents that would grow and shapeshift into apes and chimps, finally straightening their backs as homo sapiens, who could raise up the electric antenna in their spines through their crown chakra to receive the higher frequencies of the cosmos. While viewing this Cliff Notes version of evolution, I, I continued to swerve along with Jade's sinuous hips, concentrating on connecting with the energy, flow from my heart to my second chakra. I realized how much I fought being present and became aware of this planet's difficult and dense three-dimensional vibrations. Cowboy, so the guides always called me Cowboy. Cowboy, you know the great thing about grounding yourself and unifying your heart with the lower chakras? My guides whispered in my ear. What's that, I asked. It's really, really fun, they cheered. With those words, I got beamed from above with a purple tubular light. The effect was so powerful, I looked up to see if a flying disc hovered above the dance floor, but I saw nothing except the starry night and a tiny moon sliver. The beam stayed with me as I stepped away from Jade, and my crown and root chakras filled with white light. The energy poured into my electro-spiritual system from above and below, circulating through my heart chakra, Immediately, my back straightened as, a tug, as if tugged by a puppeteer, allowing the pneuma to follow its natural course, activating my chest area. With my heart center suddenly glowing brightly, a gray energetic curtain began to lift from my eyes to reveal a beautiful, luminous latticework of electrified prana stretching across the dance floor, out to the deep playa and into infinity. I saw a complicated gridwork of white light connecting us all in the deliciously high-bright vibrations of love. Not a hippie, naive love. This was rigorous and mathematical, full of integrated, um, intricate geometrical relationships that swirled the energy in immaculately constructed designs. At that moment, I remembered a passage from the Gospel of Thomas. The Father's kingdom is spread out upon the earth, and people don't see it. The veil had been temporarily removed from my eyes, and I could see the interconnected white patterns pulsing through Jade, the DJ, the dancers, and myself as we participated in this cosmic drama in our physical manifestations. With the illusion stripped away, I could see that we were part of an ocean of light. We are light flowing, moving, and transmuting shape, similar to the way that water morphs into steam and ice and snow. I understood Jesus' line about loving your enemies. From this perspective, we were all divine Shakespeare's, creating and playing the roles of muscled heroes and conniving villains, pious saints and debauched sinners, corrupt CEOs and disinterested temp workers. 
Watching this immeasurable light, as the Gnostics called it, I suddenly realized that I had one man to thank for my journey into this sudden mystical awareness. And that man happened to be George W. Bush. <laughs> I sent him a prayer of thanks, wishing him well and finding his way to the light. So then we walk across the playa, uh, the deep, like, the desert, basically, to center camp at Burning Man. At the roaring burn barrel outside center camp, we ran into two friends of Jade's, Don and Sarah. Sarah crouched on her knees wearing an Uncle Sam hat, attaching pads to the end of her fire poi chains in preparation for a fire dance. She looked up at us and cheered. Um, back then, when I was a political activist, I was going around as Johnny America. Just, just. So she looked up and cheered at me. Johnny America! Every time I see you, it brings out my shaman side. <coughs> In that second, her smile flickered into a sideways slit, her head transformed into a giant gray scalp, her eyes stretched diagonally into wide black alien eyes, and her nose shrank to two narrow pinpoints. Sarah had just revealed herself to be one of the gray aliens I had read so many negative things about while researching the Draco reptilians. I mean, that's a whole rabbit hole you could go down if people followed that. Which, in the book, I go down that rabbit hole a little bit. Um, instead of being freaked out, however, I took it all without a pause. One more piece of initiatory information on the wild side I was now walking. It didn't hurt that she looked kind, friendly and, frankly, kind of sexy. Look who's talking, I said back to her. Don gave Jade a warm hug, and she nestled close to him. I always felt a tinge of jealousy about their friendship, even though Don and Sarah were married. Don had a lot of qualities that Jade admired, including frat boy humor and a slightly macho attitude. He had co-founded an online advertising company worth $850 million, owned his own brownstone in Park Slope, and although slightly balding, he was tall, muscular, and Jewish, which would make her family happy. Don didn't appear to be wearing a playa costume. He didn't need to. He made enough of a present in his simple tan coat and blue jeans. I returned my gaze to Sarah and heard the familiar voices giggle. See? Not all aliens are ugly. I giggled too. Don caught this and he turned his gaze up to the stars and then back to me. He leaned in so close I could feel his breath. You're up there, aren't you? He grinned. I can tell, but don't worry. When the sun comes up, you'll ground. How do you know, I asked. Oh, Sarah and I have our own ET connections. When we first met at Burning Man a couple years ago, we ate some fun guy on a golden vibrating art pyramid, and she literally took off her face and showed me the sexy gray alien she is underneath. Uh, should I reveal to Don what I'd just seen? I decided not to. But later, if I could just get a side note, we had dinner with them about eight months later, and we were, at, we were having dinner, and he was talking about this alien, and I was like, you know what, Don, I changed his name in the book, I saw her shapeshift once, and he just goes, honey, draw him a picture. And she drew a picture of exactly what I saw with a alien's heart NYC uh, <laughs> strolled next to it. <laughs> So, anyways, he showed her him his her sexy gray alien underneath. Uh, that's that's incredible, I said. But aren't the grays bad? Most, but not all. You know, aliens are like people. Everyone is different, and you can't judge solely by race. Hell, even some of the Lizzies are helping out these days. Sarah lit up her poi and began spinning the chains. She was new at fire spinning and struggled at it. Uninterested in our conversation, Jade walked over to hold a fireproof safety blanket for her. How do you know about the Lizzies? I asked Don. I was surprised he knew the Pleiadian nickname for the reptilian aliens. I was also amazed that Jade and I just happened to bump into her two, into her two friends who claimed to have ET connections. Was it chance or one of those pious synchronicities? Uh, while in bed after the first date with Sarah, oh, this is Don speaking. My spirit was taken up to a mothership with huge windows overlooking the earth, Don told me. I saw thousands of saucers beaming down indigo lights of intention to help the planet ascend. But there were a few ships, some reptilian, I was told, that beamed down negative energies. My ship was full of bizarre and entertaining creatures, a carnivalesque federation of sorts. They told me they had brought me here because I could handle it. Don, oh, you know it's funny, he said. People have this tinfoil, spade suit, 1950 idea of aliens. But the beings I saw were galactic bohemians. 
David Bowie-like art stars, flamboyantly androgynous healers, and outrageous alchemists. A lot of them had really cool tattoos. <laughs> they come from advanced societies that have synthesized art and science, so they know how to have a good time. I think of Burning Man as the first extraterrestrial city on Earth. It completely integrates technology and visionary art with neo-tribal ritual. I figure most people attending came from other planets originally, they just don't realize it yet. The playa is a portal preparing us for the cosmic dance party everyone's waiting for, so to say. At that moment, a man wearing a black duster and a fedora stepped up next to us at the burn barrel. He seemed upset. Head drooped, he took off his leather gloves to warm his hands. He lifted the brim of the fedora, revealing cracked red skin around his eyes. He was in his mid-twenties, with a thick green Greek-looking unibrow, round chipmunk cheeks, and dark stubble on his chin. New Orleans is gone, man, he said with a southern drawl, his eyes on the flames. My house was wiped out, Katrina took down the whole city, people are dying in the streets, mostly blacks, Bush won't do a damn thing. Thousands are holed up in the Superdome and abandoned in flooded prisons right now, left to rot. It's totally third world, I can't believe this is America. I'm so sorry, I said. He tried to hold back tears. I put my arm around him for several minutes. Then he tipped his hat, said thanks, and walked away. I couldn't tell what was more surreal. My alien introductions are the fact that the birthplace of jazz was underwater. It all felt like pieces of a new normal. I reported the news to Sarah and Don and Jade. Isolated in the never-never land of Burning Man, where cell phones don't work and there's no email, we hadn't heard what was happening off playa in the default world. This is the only, only the beginning, Don said. America is broke, $12 trillion in debt. Saving New Orleans would cost too much unless we radically switch priorities from armaments to people. With each coming catastrophe from global warming, corporate entities are going to use the shock doctrine to take control of traumatized populations. Get ready, he said. The fight for the planet is on. Walking back to the Hebe camp that morning with Jade, the sun rays grounding me for the coming day, we passed by an eight-foot-high cafe counter serving coffee to a stilt-walking ringmaster and a stilt-walking giraffe. Two muffin art cars, one chocolate, one blueberry, racing each other down the nearly empty esplanade, and a dirty talking remote-control robot that hit on Jade. Our stroll brought back memories of lunch hour and walk near the September 11th Fund's Midtown headquarters. I remember noticing each office, bar, bank, restaurant, shop, and apartment building and seeing the first time that our entire culture is constructed at places where we work to make money to buy things and places where we recover before going back to work so we earn money to buy more things. At the time, I couldn't imagine a society other than this depressing, monochromatic hamster wheel. But Burning Man offers something different. The festival does without the arbitrary laws and regulations that draw lines between people, <coughs> isolating them from one another, boxing them in to consume more and more stuff. The Society of the Burn follows guidelines that encourage participatory culture and community engagement. If a windstorm strikes down a party tent or light sculpture, volunteers quickly rush to put it back up. If you need a coat or a hug, people are offered to you, living in the spirit of the gift. Helpful rangers in khaki cargo pants patrol the grounds, acting more like Boy Scouts than like bodyguards, body-armored cops with guns. There's a general trust for each other that enables people to feel safe to embody the festival's mantra of radical self-expression, which explodes in a circus-like spectrum of creativity and playfulness. In Black Rock City, the clashing viewpoints of rugged individualism and collectivism meld into dynamic social sculpture, where the flame-flowing barbarians and leather-clad Thunderdome gladiators pitch in together to set up camp, or collect ice from Artica, the ice store, or fill in a kitchen shift. These simple agreements lead to rampant synchronicities as all of us have our hearts open by resonating with the higher frequencies around us. Perhaps Don was right. Maybe Burning Man is the first outcropping of a new galactic culture on Earth. But as I saw it, there was still one big problem with Black Rock City. It only lasts one week a year. That was Burning Man. It's always tough to read in front of people, right? I mean, one of the major uh, arguments I make in the book is I think we may be going through a vibrational shift in humanity up the world tree of life. 
And this happens in people's own evolution. You go, you go up the chakras. You may start red, and as you evolve, you'll go to more of a yellow or orange, yellow. You know, everyone's got different auras. And of course, they're always changing, too. It fluctuates. But what I think may be happening is we've moved from this kind of tribal chakra of the second chakra into a third chakra. A lot of yogis say this, that our societies right now are in a third chakra consciousness. It's one of ambition, willpower, achievement. I mean, if you look at it, we've gone from planting seeds in the ground to seeing 14 billion years to the beginning, 14 to 15 billion years to the beginning of the universe in just 10,000 years. You know, we've accomplished a lot, both positive and negative. And those, those fires of the third chakra, and destructive fires too, are pushing us up into this third chakra, I mean, into the fourth chakra, the heart chakra. And this is like the center of the tree of life. It's the center of the cross. There are seven chakras. That's the middle of them. It's the integrator of opposites. I believe this is what the Gnostics were calling the bridal chamber. It's a secret space. If you look at that sacred heart of Jesus, you know that big glowing heart? I think he's really messaging something there. Heart energy. Heart energy is a healing energy. If you want to heal Reiki people, people in ayahuasca, you've got to open your heart and then it'll go through. If the heart's closed, it, it's really hard to heal. You're in that third chakra, fix, 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 fix. And I think what, what's happening is we're healing our lines, the vibrational fre frequency is lifting. And scientific. Often when I hear people, all oh, the vibrations, it's a scientific thing. The universe is energy. String theory says this. As we heal our wounds, as we illuminate the shadows in our family lines, in our historical lines, we bring more light, we raise the vibration, the amplitude of that heart vibration increases. More people are attracted to that vibration. It gets bigger and bigger until you have critical mass. And, uh, I mean, let's just see. Like, how many people here in this room feel like they are going through some healing or initiatory process? Like, raise your hands. Like, really raise them up. This time. Like, this is the big question of the night. Raise them, like, full straight hand. Like, I'm doing this. And if you can, just, like, look around at, like, your brothers, sisters in the room, and like acknowledge, like we're going through this. But I, I think we're the pioneers, and that's that's often a really fun place to be, but it's also really frustrating too. Um, I have a feeling if you went into the Walmart and you said, um, <laughs> "Attention, Walmart shoppers! How many people are here are going through a initiatory process?" You know, the person picking up the big thing of Crisco may not raise their hand. Um, so I, I believe we're pioneers, and we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of love and play to do too. Um, I am personally really interested in the Santa Daime Church in Oregon, where it's legal there. They use ayahuasca uh, in Christianity, kind of fusing those two. And they're very big about love and firmness. You know, you, you have to have love, but you also have to be firm and strong and keep, keep battling. I look like, I think we are spiritual warriors of love. And, you know, we're getting a lot of forces that want, you know, they want to drag you down. And it's just always going back to that love component, the healing component seeing beyond the separation, the integration that's happening here. Um, yeah, and I think societally we're seeing this too. Like we are energetically a house critically divided. We fight for, I mean, of course I think it's even worse in the U.S. You know, we're such rugged individualists there. You know, we fight for resources, we fight for jobs, we fight for energy, we fight for money, we fight for land, we fight for everything. Compete, compete, compete. And these systems, these hierarchical, parasitic models, are meant to cut your energy down. I see it as part of that Eden rift, the shame, blame, taking your energy. It's like advertising, I feel, is like a really unconscious form of shamanism. Casting spells, in a way. You know, in the beginning was the word. The word is a spell. It's, a, it's magic. And you can use the word for really beautiful things. But you can also say, you're not good enough, eat a Snickers. So you've wounded... And then you've put in this replacement thing that doesn't heal. And I think our role is to use those functions, create new design systems that understand energy, that we create sacred geometries of healing, um, that we create health systems that actually are healing models, that we create educational systems that actually understand wisdom versus information. 
then we have political systems. I mean, I'm so excited about the Occupy. You know, we are the 99%, and I know people are now saying we are the 100%, but just going to that 99 has been a huge leap in our consciousness of, wow, that's including people we would have never included before. Um, yeah, and I think these systems have lied to us, and they've left us empty, and now people are really looking for things. And that's why you guys, you know, Jesus says, you don't take a lamp and you put it under, you, know, you put it on a lamp post. And we're meant to shine. I love this idea of the disciples going out and spreading the gospel, the good news. But it's not through this, like, evangelical, you must think this way. It's through love and showing light in the darkness, showing there are these opportunities, there are these spaces that we're creating for healing, for connection, uh, to make change in the world. You know, and that's kind of like the Evolver Social Movement. We are really working on that, too. I'm so thankful Occupy has happened because... Like, all this stuff we wanted to do, they're now doing it. Like, all the political stuff, like, they're doing, covering a lot of that. And I think, uh, with, if I get into Evolver, I think a lot of what we cover is, like, the cultural and consciousness stuff. Um, like, so, what was the last film screening you showed here? It's a film. <clears throat> I haven't done a film in a while. Um, Which Electronic film? Awakening would be. Okay. Electronic Awakening. Yeah. yeah. So it's this movie about like dance tribes and how they're changing, uh, opening people up uh, to community and reinventing them, their lives and transforming. Um, and I mean, I think that's a real service. A lot of places, one, they don't need to have independent theaters, but also these independent theaters, they may not, they may not be up to showing consciousness movies like Thrive, I Am, um, Twenty Twelve, Time for Change. There's been so many great ones coming out. Wake Up, DMT, The Spirit Molecule. I'm really excited about this. There's also a lot of great new literature coming out, um, like Fishers of Men, Adam Ellen Boss. Charles Eisenstein was just in town. Uh, hopefully some folks saw him. He's got this book, Sacred Money, Sacred Economics. Um, that's an Evolver Editions <coughs> book like my book. Uh, we just did, or so he's been traveling this four network. So we've got the Speaker Viewer, Speakers Bureau, we've got... Uh, the film screenings, we got consciousness parties like tomorrow night, um, which I guess we'll talk about that a little later, the consciousness party, eco-festivals, all these kind of things. Um, and we're creating these spaces, these safe nodes to show people like there's a whole different way we can be and interact. Um, so that's part of it. And to be honest, I think if you look at the situation, like where we're at, we're totally screwed. Politically, economically, environmentally, we are screwed. The environmental indicators, all of them, but we're screwed in the old context, in the old form. When you open up your heart, when you ground yourself, you open up to these energies, there is so much help. There's so much healing. The potentiality we have as sons and daughters of the divine is extraordinary. And, you know, I actually think we need a miracle, and that's exactly why we're here, is we are here to, we're here to manifest miracles. Um, and that's what happens, and this is why, I mean, probably so many of you can say, like, there was a synchronicity that brought you here, or at least on your path. We heard the words synchronicity and magic all the time across this Evolver network. You know, and that's 40 cities. So, and it's just growing, and there's, everyone's doing their thing. There's so many groups out there right now, so many tribes, and I feel like we're doing it, but like I said, we're the pioneers, so we've got to be firm and have love. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, uh, are you still with me? Now, if you've been joining me here in the salon for a while, you may have noticed that I do my best to avoid any and all discussions about organized religion. Like you, uh, perhaps, I see a clear dividing line between organized religions with their dogmas and hierarchies of priests and ministers and the world of spirituality, which I think of as arising primarily from personal experience. And as I've said before, uh, my bias against organized religion comes from a childhood and early adulthood that was closely confined within the walls of the Catholic Church. It took me uh, until I was over 40 years old to break the mental chains that had been forged in my mind during all of those years of being preached to about 
what a worthless and sinful creature I was. And for what it's worth, that included four years of a Catholic education at the University of Notre Dame. In fact, uh, now that I think of it, uh, and this is a joke coming your way, (laughs) but now that I think of it, maybe the fact that our class was the first in the history of the school to never have a winning football team, uh, well, uh, maybe that's what caused me to begin losing my belief in the power of prayer to the Catholic God, uh, the God of football, right? In any event, uh, I am now firmly against any and all organized religions. It doesn't seem necessary, of course, to point out that uh, people are dying all over the world today because uh, some crackpot Christian posted a YouTube video that profaned Islam. But before we jump on the bandwagon against uh, the irrationality of that kind of a response to a video that uh, most of the demonstrators haven't actually even seen, uh, we should keep in mind, perhaps, as uh, John Stewart on The Daily Show pointed out, that in terms of the age of Islam, it's about where the Catholics were when uh, their religion was only 1,400 years old as well. And uh, at that point in their evolution, uh, well, we had the Inquisition and the burning of tens of thousands of women healers who were branded as witches. My point is that all organized religions have their periods of insanity. In my own case, uh, once I shed the shackles of my childhood brainwashing in my parents' religion, which is the same thing that happened to them. Well, after I broke loose and became a free thinker, I did my best to become an atheist. But at the time, uh, I was living in a place where you could walk through the fields and gather magic mushrooms for free. So, I was an atheist during the week, but on weekends, uh, after swallowing a bunch of magic mushrooms, I began to develop my own spiritual practice. I can still remember my uh, dad's friends when they were talking about World War II saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. Well, uh, the same is true for people who are in the process of uh, digesting a few grams of dried mushrooms. (laughs) Uh, Now, this has, I guess, been a really long way for me to get to the main point that I wanted to make about religion. And it ties into uh, what we heard Krishnamurti say in my previous podcast about the pitfall of words. For example, I do my best to avoid the word God because my assumption is that no two of us has exactly the same concept of what the word means. You know, to some it brings up an image of an old man, uh, it's usually a man, isn't it? Uh, With a long white beard, sitting on a throne, and in a really bad mood while condemning unbaptized little children to hell. Now others may think of a universal spirit, or a pervasive consciousness, or any of a thousand other concepts. So, uh, to me, that word is uh, so poorly defined now that it's uh, essentially useless. Likewise, uh, when I heard Jonathan just now state that he was a Christian, and uh, in fact he even seemed to surprise himself in saying that, uh, well, when he said that, my mind, uh, for a brief moment, forgot everything that he'd said leading up to that statement, and my thought was, I can't podcast this, Uh, there's no way that I want to appear to support Christianity. And uh, that's where Krishnamurti's concept of the tyranny of words comes in, Because what Jonathan was talking about, of course, was his resonance with the spirit of the Gnostic Christianity that was so pervasive, uh, we think at least, during the first 100 years or so of that religion. Yet, even though I knew exactly what he was saying, the word Christian completely turned me off for a moment. Again, this is just a long way of saying that we all need to be very careful about our communications with others. And I'm not criticizing Jonathan here at all. He perfectly explained what he meant. It was me and my mind's jumping to conclusions that laid the trap for me. Now, in past podcasts, we've heard Terrence McKenna often say that the world is created by language. uh, And that thought really isn't all that clear to me, to be honest. However, just recently I was talking to an educator who told me that children from affluent homes where the parents still read to their children and can afford to send them to preschool, well, children from those homes start kindergarten with a vocabulary of around 3,500 words. But poor children who come from homes where books are virtually unknown and who can't afford preschool, those children arrive at kindergarten with a vocabulary of only 400 words. Think of it. These little children only have 400 words with which to think of and describe their world. No wonder we're facing so many social problems these days. 
Well, uh, now I'm really off track, so <laughs> I guess that I'd better end this little rant that has uh, moved from a commentary about organized religion to the importance of having a good vocabulary, uh, when instead I should have been just complimenting Jonathan on not just the things that he's done for our community, but also for having the courage to write about and talk about his own transformative journey through this incredible game that we call Life on the Planet Earth. And... If you think back to the beginning of Jonathan's mystical and personal adventures, they all began when he was advised to take some MDMA and get on the dance floor, which is precisely how my own personal transformation from Larry to Lorenzo began. A little MDMA, a few hours dancing at the Stark Club, and, well, as uh, I've said before, when I walked into the Stark Club for the first time, I was an Irish Catholic Republican lawyer. When I walked out, I was still Irish, but the rest had all been washed away by some of the best music that I'd ever danced to. And so to Sobi and all the rest of you wonderful people who are dancing for us all right now, not just on the Pacific Coast, but all over the world, my heartfelt thanks goes out to you. And just in case someone hears this and yet isn't already a big fan of these great gatherings, let me close with something that Henry Miller wrote in his novel, Tropic of Cancer. And keep in mind, this was written in 1934, a time when the world also seemed ready to come unhinged. I believe that today, more than ever, a book should be sought after even if it only has one great page in it. We must search for fragments, splinters, toenails, anything that has ore in it. Anything that is capable of resuscitating the body and soul. It may be that we are doomed, that there is no hope for us, any of us. But if that is so, then let us set up a last, agonizing, blood-curling howl. A screech of defiance, a war whoop. Away with lamentation. Away with eulogies and dirges. Away with biographies and histories and libraries and museums. Let the dead eat the dead. Let us living ones dance about the rim of the crater. A last expiring dance, but a dance. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.